Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast, located in Seattle, Washington. As a church, we are a community striving to be faithfully present to God, self, and others. We hope this is an encouragement to you in your life, no matter where you are. Thanks for joining us. I'm going to read from 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's let's do it. Let's jump into the sermon for today. Man, what a great morning. What a great morning. Um, Gosh. Joseph, man, thank you. Thank you for sharing your story with us, man. Just bravo. What an example of faith you are to to our church. Just bless you, ma'am. Thank you. Thank you. For real. Um, Okay. And thanks to our kids for reading the scripture this morning. It's just, this is so fun. All right. In the words of St. Augustine, the early church father, he said... We are Easter people, and Alleluia is our song. So it is good to be with you today. It is a joyous day. I have prayed for you this morning, um, and the Spirit of God is here present among us now as we've gathered around the person and the work of our risen Lord Jesus. And so by way of introduction, I also want to express that um, while the room is filled with lots of joy and celebration, uh, and rightfully so. If you find yourself in a place of rejoicing this morning, there's a whole lot here to rejoice with you. Uh, At the same time, in a room like this, I'm very much so aware that there could be people that are quite skeptical of the faith. Maybe you're invited with a family member or a friend today or just decided, I'm gonna just check out what they're talking about on Easter. Uh, And if you find yourself in a place of skepticism or doubt or questioning, I want you to know this is a place that you can belong long before you ever believe what we do as professing Christians believe about the Lord Jesus. This is a place you can ask your questions and investigate and test the claims of the scriptures of Jesus himself and certainly of the church. And so you're welcome here as well. And not only the skeptics, uh, but I also want to say... to every weary saint this morning. Um, Just a couple of things. That for all the hope and the beauty and the promise that Easter Sunday brings, uh, the reality is, is that we do live in a world filled with Good Fridays and Holy Saturdays. And sometimes Good Fridays and Holy Saturdays still linger around on Easter Sundays for the saints. They do. 
And so I want to affirm you, if you find yourself in a place of maybe grief this morning, I just want to remind you that you're in a place where that's okay. And in fact, the resurrection of Christ is not a call for you to bury your head in the sand, sing anyway, and kind of put some kind of Christian cliche, a bow on your own present suffering and just have to pretend that everything's okay. In fact, it's the exact opposite. The resurrection of Christ invites you into your real life, the real you, the present you, the one with all the skeletons in the closet and all the wrong turns and all the things that didn't work out and the way that life took a shape that you didn't hope that it would take. And that's present to you this morning. The resurrection of Christ invites you, hey, I'm here to meet you in the real life, not, not a pretend one, but your real life. So, the resurrection says, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. And I think Jesus is particularly fond of weary people on Easter Sunday. After all, as soon as he was resurrected from the dead, it seems like he couldn't wait to get the news to the disciples who were filled to the brim with fear and confusion and loss. On Easter Sunday, prior to meeting Jesus, the 11 were hiding in a room upstairs, filled to the brim with fear, knowing that what Rome just did to Jesus on Friday, they'll do to me if they find me this morning. They're filled with fear. They're filled with confusion. Because after all that Jesus had done with walking on the water and raising the dead and feeding the thousands and all the rest... They're filled with confusion. Could it actually be over when he said, is it finished? Is that what he means? It's just over? They were confused. And they were filled with loss. He loved us so well. And in fact, we left everything to follow him. And now he's out of sight permanently. Loss. And yet, just around the corner was... A few women carrying Easter grace for those disciples. And that same Easter grace that was present on the first Easter morning is present to you today in the risen and triumphant and gentle King Jesus. He knows your whole life story. And he comes to you in your pew this morning not with a list of rules or obligations or unrealistic expectations. He does not approach you as a taskmaster, but as a savior. And he says, I see you this morning in your Sunday dress, and it's very pretty, but you're not here for a Sunday dress, are you? You're not here for flowers, are you? You're not here for like a pep talk of like inspiration, are you? You're certainly not here because you actually care about improving your morals, are you? You're here because you want to know if it's true. Is it still true? You want to know if I'm real. 
You're here because something deep inside you has cried out since the day you were born. Something about love, something about justice, something about peace, and something about belonging. That's been in you all your life. And I've got some questions for you and some answers. Will you trust me? Even if you don't know it all. Will you follow me when I take you down a path that you'd rather not go? Will you make me king in a world that rejects me? Easter grace comes to the wayward disciple who at one time in high school had a bonfire of faith, but now, this morning, through life and circumstances, that faith has been reduced to nothing more than just a smoldering wick, a flicker. Because life pulled you in every other direction except toward him. And if that's you this morning, Easter grace says to you, I've seen your wobbly discipleship. I know what's broken inside. I know the wrong turns you took. The things that happened, the words you said, the days that you wish you could go back and just relive all over. I see your doubts and insecurities. Your bankrupt spiritual poverty. I know the pain that's caused you to question me and my word and certainly my people. I know the shame that's gripped you. I know the guilt that can keep you at bay. I know exactly how long and exactly how distracted you've been. I've seen it all, and I know you better than you know yourself. And I am here as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who died and is alive forevermore. And I have a word for you. I love you. In fact, I've never stopped loving you. I can't stop loving you because love is not a virtue that I attempt. I am love. I'm not the God of second chances or third chances. I'm the God of Easter grace. You can't run it out. <laughs> it's finished. I've buried your past sins. I'm reigning over your present struggles. And I've already conquered tomorrow's failure too. It was for the joy of knowing you that I went through the horror of Good Friday. And I forever close the gap between you and God. So I'm the God of the Easter grace. I'm the God of the thief on the cross. I'm the God of the denying Peter. I'm the God of the doubting Thomas. I'm the God whose love knows no boundaries, whose forgiveness is unparalleled. 
and whose kindness is infinite. So welcome to Easter. (laughs) Now, two points about the resurrection that are important. Lest we think all this is like myth or magic or wishful thinking. First, women. In the Gospels, we're taught that while the disciples were hiding in fear, Jesus triumphantly resurrected from the dead. And who was there first? Just a handful of women. And Jesus revealed himself to them, and he told them, I'm up from the dead, and I want you to go and proclaim the gospel, the good news, that I am up from the grave. He instructs the women, and they go, and they find the disciples, and the women proclaim Jesus is resurrected from the grave. Why is that important? Why does gender matter around resurrection? Oh, it's infinitely important. According, well, according to Josephus, the Jewish historian, listen to what he has to say about women's testimonies. They were dismissed, quote, because of the levity and the boldness of their sex. Celsus was an early critic of Christianity in the second century, and he laughed at the thought of Mary Magdalene being a resurrection witness and said, quote, She is a hysterical female, deluded by sorcery. You see, women were only allowed to testify what goes on in their house, in private life, but never publicly. Even if there were multiple women witnesses, they were never taken seriously. Why is that so important? Because the gospel writers, if they were concerned with proclaiming and keeping up and maintaining with all the social norms, they would have absolutely omitted this reality. Women's testimony's not valid. We don't count their testimony unless it's true, unless they're more concerned with the truth rather than saving face. This is an overwhelming apologetic for the reality of the gospel. The apostles, should they wanted to have maintained a social norm, they would have left the women out completely. After all, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John were holding the pen when they wrote the gospels. They had the freedom to leave that out. But because they were committed to truth, because they were committed to eyewitness testimony, the women were there first, and they let the apostles in on the good news that Jesus was dead. Until the women proclaimed, all we had was bad news. Jesus was dead. Ah. So there's one that builds faith in me, knowing that they weren't about just maintaining status quo. They were preserving down to the details. Who was there? Who witnessed what? So there's one. The other point of significance that I've found that builds faith in me is that in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes that Jesus was raised from the dead, but didn't only appear to these women and then his disciples. And he didn't go and find Caesar, and didn't go and find Pilate, and didn't go find people in authority. Rather, he just appears to crowds of upwards of 500 people at one time, eating and drinking with them, talking with them, 
being with them. John writes in 1 John that we handled him. We touched his physical body. We, we had a fish sandwich. Go read Luke chapter 24. We had a fish sandwich with Jesus the day he was resurrected. Like They're examining this, and Jesus was present not to just a few, not to just some elite, and not just to some people that were trying to fabricate some new myth. No. He physically resurrected from the grave and appeared to both people who believed in him and some did not believe in him but still witnessed this resurrection of Jesus. This means that the crowds were not hallucinating. One guy can hallucinate. Sure, there's plenty in Seattle right now hallucinating. Um, Crowds of 500 don't all hallucinate and see the same thing. This is not a hallucination. It's not a body double. This isn't a stunt. Jesus didn't have a twin brother. (laughs) He was actually resurrected from the grave physically. I find that so compelling. And if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then we should dismiss him completely as a self-centered liar who thinks the whole world should revolve around him. Write him off. If the resurrection isn't true, move on. That's actually the instructions of the apostles. Yet our calendars testify to the reality that he has been raised from the dead. It's 2022 for a reason. Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. Jesus walked this earth and Jesus rose from the dead. The center point of history is not an idea. It's not a code of morals. It's not a list of rules. The center point of history is the booming announcement that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, the savior of all who would call upon him. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, if anyone be in Christ, he's a new creation, the old has gone, and the new has come. Anyone, meaning quite literally, anybody, Walking the earth, regardless of where you were born, what social class, ethnicity, what political party you belong to, your education status, your financial status, anyone, anyone who is walking this earth is a candidate for the salvation of God. If anyone is in Christ, how do you receive God's salvation? By going into Christ, which is not going into a church building, which is not going into a worship service, which is not going to Easter brunch or going to your friend's house. Going into Christ is not singing a Christian song, going into Christ is not reading Christian literature. Going into Christ is not trying to be a good person. To go into Christ means that you finally drop everything, become completely bankrupt before God and say, I need you and you alone. I'm rolling it all on your grace. I'm not going to try anymore to fix myself. I need you, not a code of morals. I need your Holy Spirit to come and regenerate me, work on me, and stay with me and consistently make me new. 
Going into Christ means I agree with God. I repent of my sin. I place my faith in the death and buried and resurrected Son of God. And I've surrendered not only to him as my Savior, but I've invited him to be my Lord, which means he governs how I think and feel and act and live in this world as his and his alone. To go into Christ is to say, Jesus, I need you as my Savior, and I surrender to you as my Lord, and I don't care what it costs. I need you, and I follow you alone. So, to become a new creation that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians here is not a magic trick in which God somehow makes the old you just disappear. To become a new creation is not God taking you and just smashing you into just powder and, and then bring out a new, new, new one from behind the curtain. That's not the idea behind becoming a new creation at all. Becoming a new creation is not God suddenly deleting the hard drive of your brain. It's not God suddenly deleting your testimony and the story that brought you up to that moment. That's not new creation. Rather, new creation means that God moves into your real life now, here, and begins to make you new with the old material still intact, that you're becoming new, not later, but now. As Christians, we believe in a theology called already, not yet. I'm already being made new, and on the last day, I will be made completely new. Paul talks about it in Romans 8. We will be glorified. But in the meantime, it's not, Christianity is not a set of ideas that you just go, oh, I think a few things about God. No. Christianity is saying, I surrender to Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And he begins to work in me here and now. He does not make you forget your old story, but moves into this present one now and begins to redefine everything. Recently, I read a, a book by uh, a Japanese theologian and artist. His name is Makoto Fujimara. It's a brilliant book. And it's endorsed by some of the premier world scholars, scripture scholars. It's called Art and Faith. And as a Japanese artist, he is uniquely equipped to see some things just pop out of the Bible and give new language to old words. And he gives this incredible metaphor. And he describes it, he describes the resurrection in the art form of kintsugi. Have you come across kintsugi before? It's uh, an old pottery. Uh, it's, it's basically a... There's conflicting stories about its origins, but here you go. A warlord had a favorite tea set several centuries ago, and the tea set was broken, and the servant decides, I'm going to fix it. And so he takes the tea set, begins to put it back together with a lacquer, and then when it was done, it's all glued together, but he decided to cover all the cracks 
in gold. Have you seen this before? It's absolutely beautiful. And so one picture that we've got here that will show it's kind of a, a, broken, a broken goblet. Let's see if it comes up. There you go. This is the idea that you see in Kintsugi. Now, why is this important? Listen to what he says about the resurrection. Makoto writes, fixing what is broken is an opportunity to transcend the use of an object. Kintsugi bowls are treasured as objects that surpass their original useful purpose and move into a realm of beauty brought on by the Kintsugi master. Thus, our brokenness in light of the wounds of Christ, still visible after the resurrection, can also mean that through making, by honoring the brokenness, the broken shapes can somehow be a necessary component of the new world to come. This is the most outrageous promise of the Bible, which is at the heart of theology of making. Not only are we restored, we are to partake in the co-creation of the new. Oh my gosh, I know, read the book. It's called Art and Faith, and it's absolutely mind-blowing that God, as he moves in and puts your life back together, he does not call you to do your own atoning, your own Yom Kippur, and cover yourself up with more fig leaves, but rather, as he puts you back together, day after day after day, as he's putting you together, he's inlaying the broken pieces with the resurrection of Christ, so that you can then point at your own weakness and do what Paul says, and I boast in my weakness because Jesus has moved in to the broken part of my life and has put me back together. I can now be completely present to my real self. I can be present to the reality of this world that is broken and it hurts and it's hard and it's difficult and I'm confused and I'm disoriented and everything flies in all these directions all day long on Twitter and I'm coming undone. And yet I can call attention to go as I feel weak, as I feel broken, all the wrong turns of my life, I can now point to those and go, yes, I have an advocate, I have a mediator, I have a prince of peace who has triumphed over all the confusion and all the brokenness of my own life and he has not told me to bury my brokenness in the stand but rather to show up to my real life in the resurrection power through his spirit as I keep my eyes fixed on the son of God. That's good news, that the gospel is not calling you, the gospel is not calling you to downplay your story or your suffering. The gospel's inviting you in to heal, to heal. And so Kintsugi serves as this beautiful, beautiful metaphor. In fact, we have new communion pieces today, and we're going to start using these now in our church, and they're actual, yeah, yeah, let's see them, Dan. We've got, thanks, Omi. Um, they, we actually have these new communion pieces that are made of Kintsugi, and they are beautiful. You guys are like, you're going to drop that, dude. <laughs> Don't make me laugh, dude. Can you see this? All the gold inlay. As we were talking as a team, we were thinking, we should just use Kintsugi at communion. I mean, it's an icon. You don't really have to comment on icons, do you? 
They just kind of preach the whole story all by themselves. So that's where this communion where comes from. And so that's what we're going to start using from now on at our, at our church. And it teaches us how to become faithfully present to God, to ourselves, and to each other. Happy Resurrection Sunday, church. You are the Kintsugi of God. <laughs>